right, let's get after it. If you've got a Bible, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We will finish up the chapter this morning. And so that will put us on a pace of two chapters a month, uh, which is not that bad, I don't think. Uh, so we'll, we'll try to stay on that pace. We'll take a break uh, next week from Hebrews. Uh, my good friend Matt Fox will be here uh, and will be preaching for us. Uh, some of you may remember Matt. Um, he's spoken here before, and, and everyone really loves him. Uh, so he'll be here. I don't know very many people with a bigger heart uh, than Matt has, and so I'm excited for him to share with us next week, and then we'll jump right back into Hebrews 3. Um, this week has been a, a roller coaster for me, and so I've been very busy. Uh, in fact, I, I mean, I think it's one of the busiest weeks I've had in a long time, just speaking engagements, meetings, things like that. Um, and it's just been up. I mean, there's been good things, and then there's been down, and then some frustrating things. I'll give you an example. Uh, Tuesday um, was one of my days off, didn't have a speaking thing or anything going on. So um, Tuesday, I uh, just spent some of the morning reading and just relaxing, and, and then I was driving in here. Um, and I don't know if you can relate to this, um, but like my windows were down as I was driving, and like the air just felt good. You know what I'm talking about? The air just felt good, and I was like, oh, the air just feels good. And uh, I'm listening to music, and the music's good, but, but for some reason, Tuesday, just it sounded better than it usually sounds. And uh, I was able to get some Tex-Mex, and I'm, I'm just like, oh, yes, praise God. So Tuesday was a great day, and I went to bed Tuesday night, um, and it just felt great. Um, but I woke up Wednesday, and normally when I wake up, uh, I'll see some light coming in if it's morning time um, from through my blinds. And, and I woke up, and, but it was pitch black, there's no light, and so I'm like, what time is that? I look over, it's like 3.55 uh, in the morning, um, which is unusual uh, because normally I'm a very heavy sleeper. It takes like three alarms to get me up. Uh, and then normally I sleep, I mean, I can sleep for a long time. Um, and as I'm laying there, I'm like, why am I awake at four in the morning? Slowly but surely, my mouth just starts to hurt real bad. And so um, within like five minutes, in just the left side of my mouth, there's this dull, aching, like just agonizing, crucial, uh, uh, brutal pain. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, and I, I mean, my first thought is, this is not good. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I, hadn't been to, I haven't been to the dentist in a while. Um, and then two, I don't have health insurance right now. So the fact that my mouth feels like it's about to fall off uh, was not a good thing. And so I'm sitting there, and then I, I make uh, my first mistake of the morning, um, which was I went online and typed in uh, <laughs> mouth pain on the left side, because uh, who needs a doctor when you've got Google uh, and WebMD? Um, and I'm a kind of a hypochondriac, so it's a mistake for me. And so I, I get online, and I see that uh, mouth pain on your left side uh, can be a symptom of like a heart attack, uh, stroke, aneurysm, I mean, all kinds of things. Um, and so I naturally assume it's the heart attack one. Uh, and so I'm like, That's, my heart is beating a little bit faster. And like, so I OD on some Excedrin. I take like six or eight. Uh, and then I, I take a shower. I'm thinking, you know, maybe I just need to calm down. The warmth might help. Um, but it's not helping. And so I'm out of the shower. It's like 4.15, 4.20 at this point. And I'm just sitting in my room. It's just pitch black. And it's just hurting so bad. And so I'm really considering going to like an emergency clinic because I just don't know what to do. So I call my mom. Uh, it's like 4.20, 4.25 at this point. And uh, she, she answers, she says, hello? I'm like, did I wake you? <laughs> she's like, Mike? And I'm like, how are you doing? <laughs> she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, okay, no small talk. Uh, and uh, I'm just like, I don't, my mouth hurts really bad. I don't know what to do. And, and she's like, well, have you had science stuff? And I'm like, yeah, I've had a little bit of science stuff. She's like, it's probably that. That happened to me a couple of years ago. I mean, can you pick a tooth out? So she talks me down from my heart attack uh, theory. Um, and eventually the, the pain kind of subsided. We got taken care of. Uh, but those, those two hours, man, I was sitting there in my room, and it's just early morning, there's nothing to do, and my mouth is just killing me. And I'm finding in that time, um, 
one, I'm just kind of upset at God. Like I'm just kind of, I'm kind of frustrated. Uh, and I'm just going, why? I mean, why would you, this is so awful. And I'm just feeling like really, and just, just me being honest, I just feel like he's really ungrateful for me. Um, like I'm, I'm working so hard and I've got so much stuff coming up and, and, and I can't even, I mean, I'm just waking up with this random, awful pain in my mouth. And then I don't know if you can resonate with this, but at one and the same time, I'm upset with God. And then I'm also just, I really want him to like me, you know? Uh, so I'm like, why? But please, you know, like me and, and, and still um, relate to me. And so I find myself, I'm, I'm having to rehearse Wednesday morning um, just the basic truths of the gospel. Um, the basic truths about who Jesus is, what he's done, how he relates to me, how he feels about me. Um, and so I say they're, they're basic truths of the gospel um, with the, the understanding that, I mean, these basic truths about Jesus or at the same time, very deep, eternal truths that, that really will spend all of eternity trying to figure out. Um, I think one of the ways that the church has done a misservice, um, at least in my experience, is that we have assumed that the gospel, again, these, these basic yet deep truths, uh, are somehow only for people who don't believe in God. People who haven't accepted Christ. Um, people who need to be converted. And so what happens after we accept Christ or after we're converted is um, that's kind of assumed. I mean, we kind of move on from that. And so what happens a lot of times on a Sunday morning is the gospel is assumed. And then what gets taught is really, I mean, just it's closer to moralism. Um, do this. Don't do this. This is how you do this. This is how you don't do this. Um, and, and really, um, two things happen to that point. Uh, one, you do it. So, so I say, don't commit adultery. Uh, and, and, and you don't commit adultery. I mean, you obey that. Um, but then, I mean, that's a lose situation because then you're just self-righteous. Um, then you were able to clean yourself up and, and, and you're probably just as far away from Christ as you ever were. Um, or you, you do do adultery. I mean, you fail in that command. You fail in that moral exhortation. And then you feel like Jesus failed you. Like in some sense, he didn't work for you. Um, it's, it's lose-lose uh, when you just preach moralism. Um, the truth is, and, and there's a growing movement in churches, um, that the gospel, I mean, these real basic truths about who Jesus is, what he's done, and how he relates to us, it's, it's foundational. It's, it's, it's needed in our day-to-day -day life. Like it's needed in, in our day-to-day -day life for us to worship and to have faith and to endure these hard things. Um, so I think your, your first blank here is one of the most important parts of our faith is how we understand both Jesus' accomplishment, what he's done for us, and then also how he relates to us. So if we don't understand that, um, then when things get tough, um, when there are hard things in our life, then we, we have a tendency to run away from him. Um, and so we, 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 we can't get over the gospel. I mean, we can't move past the gospel. Um, Hebrews, this, this book we've been in, so far we've seen up to this part in chapter 2. Uh, it's just been Jesus, 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 Jesus. So he starts off with this paragraph about who Jesus is, what he's done. Um, then he goes on this extended rant about how Jesus is better than the angels, better than the angels, better than the angels. Then as chapter 2 begins, he says, um, since you needed to listen to the angels and what they said, now you must listen even closer to what Jesus says, what God is saying through him. Um, and then last week we saw um, this sermon on Psalm 8, uh, that man had this destiny. We were supposed to rule over creation, but we've fallen. Um, but Jesus has, has taken our place in that, has become the true, um, perfect human being. Um, and, and Hebrews is written, as we've mentioned, to keep his audience, his church, on track. And so there's danger for them of falling away, uh, of, of drifting away, he says in chapter 2. And he's writing to keep them um, focused on Christ and, and faithful um, in following him and, and being faithful to um, what he's commanded them to do. In our passage this morning, um, it's, it's all about 
who Jesus is, what he's done for us, this church, and then how he relates to us. And, and I think the author is, is presenting this to us um, in hopes that as we, we stay focused on these truths, as we more and more and more understand these truths throughout our day-to-day -day life, um, we'll find ourselves able to endure um, hard times and, and able to worship and have faith and be loyal. We'll pick it up in, in verse 10 here. Hebrews 2, verse 10. Scripture says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. All right, there's a lot here. Uh, he says it was fitting for he. I think the he here is God. Um, in verse 9 he says, So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting for he, um, for whom and by whom all things exist. And so um, there's lots in this verse, but he, he's talking about God and he says, um, All things exist by God and for God. This, this real symbol, God is great. I mean, he's huge. He's majestic. That's your, your first blank there. God is great. Um, it was fitting that he, the subject here, God, for whom and by whom all things exist. I was up here um, earlier this week, and, and I was going through this passage, and I, I went to go take a walk to, to kind of organize my thoughts. And, and as I was walking, I decided I was going to run every thought I had and everything I saw through these two filters. And so I'm walking and, and just kind of going to neighbors, and I, I see a squirrel kind of run out and then run up a tree, and I'm just kind of looking at it. I've always liked squirrels. I don't know why. Um, and I'm going, that a squirrel was created by God and for God. And, and I'm looking at trees and, and different things, and, and then a, a mother walks by with her son um, in, a, in a stroller, and I'm thinking, those two people, those two individuals were created by God, and they were created for him. The re the reality of the universe, I mean, the existent world around us is that it's God-centered. I mean, it's all about him. It revolves around him. It says, this God for whom and by whom all things exist, his, his purpose, even in his greatness and his majesty, was to bring many sons to glory. He's a great God, but he's a loving God. To bring many sons to glory. This is probably referring back to Psalm 8 when human beings were supposed to be crowned with glory and honor where we've fallen, but, but God doesn't look at our fallenness and desert us or destroy us, but instead says, I will bring them through that. I will save them. I will rescue them. I will redeem them. And so he, he sets out to bring his sons to glory. And then the verse starts out with, it was fitting. I mean, it was, it was appropriate. This is like God. Um, so I don't know, like if you know someone really well, um, and so you've just spent a lot of time with them, had a lot of conversations with them, and then someone... Uh, is telling you a story about them and maybe something they said. Have you ever had that moment where you're like, I can see exactly them saying that. Like, I can hear the tone in their voice. I can see what their eyes would look like. Like, that is so them. That is so them. Well, that's what the scripture saying here. It's so God. I mean, it's so fitting, so appropriate, so close to his character that this great, majestic God would, would bring his sons to the glory. And he would do so, um, it says, through making the founder. So now we're talking about Jesus making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus is giving a, a title here um, that's going to be really important. Um, I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, and it translates this, uh, he's made the founder, the one who started, who originated. Um, the NIV, I think, has pioneer. Um, other translations may have author or something like that. Um, the Greek word here is archagon, and it's uh, actually a title that's used uh, to give to Hercules. Um, so Hercules, the Greek god, the divine hero uh, who battles these forces and, and wins salvation and peace and, and safety for mankind. 
Um, I think based on um, just kind of the, the cultural context and also what we'll see in verse 14 and 15, a real good translation here might be champion. Um, he has made him the champion of their salvation, that, that Christ has won a victory, has won a battle for us, um, as we'll see again in, in verse 15, 14 and, and 15. Um, but regardless, he's the, the leader, the head, the author of our salvation, the founder, pioneer, however you want to word that. And so it's fitting that God, as he was bringing these sons to glory, would, would make the founder perfect through suffering. This is a really interesting phrase. Because the question I think that we have is, was at one time Jesus not perfect? I mean, at one time was he, he lacking something? Um, was he um, in need of something and, and now he has it? What, what do the scriptures mean when they say he's been made perfect through suffering? Where, um, our English word perfect has a, a much different connotation um, than the Greek word here, teleos. Um, and, and telos, I mean, if you're talking about the telos of something, um, you're looking at the goal or the end, the aim of it. Um, and whereas our perfect uh, and perfection um, kind of language talks more about nature and character and things like that. Um, when it, he says he was made perfect through suffering. What it's saying here is he's achieved his goal. So his goal was to, on behalf of God, bring sons to glory, to champion their salvation, to win it for them. And he has achieved that. He has gotten there through suffering. In a sense, the suffering equipped him to play this role. He was equipped um, through his suffering. Um, and the, the rest of this passage, this is almost like a thesis for this passage, uh, will explain this. Look in, in verse 11 here. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Okay, so see, we see here how, how Jesus relates to you and I, to his people. He who sanctifies, which is Christ, the one who makes us holy, the Redeemer, and those who are sanctified, so you and I who, who need to be redeemed, the ones who need to be made holy, all have one source, the source being God the Father. He, he's using an image here of us as a family, with Jesus as the firstborn or the older brother. And he says here, that is why the fact that we have one source, that's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now there are some verses in the scriptures that I read or have read, and, and I just never quite get over them. Like, I, I, can, I can mentally understand them and, and intellectually grasp them, um, but, but in a real deeper place in, in, in my heart, like, I just don't, I'm not quite sure I've grasped it all. Um, and this is one of them. That Jesus would, would look at me, Mike Skinner, and say, that's my brother. That he would, in a sense, be proud. I mean, this is, is a crazy verse to me. They, they would look at you and, and say, that's my sister. They, and so there's a, a point in the Gospels where Jesus says something like this. He says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. If you're not ashamed of me, I won't be ashamed of you. And so that gets put on the email forwards. And uh, and, and people will wonder, you know, how bad would it be for, for Jesus to be ashamed of you? My question with that passage has always been, I understand that. I don't understand how he could look at anybody and say, I'm not ashamed of them. Like the fact that you and I, I mean, screw-ups as we are. I mean, we're failures. I mean, we make lots of mistakes. We have lots of shame. But that Christ looks at us and has pride and goes, that's mine. That's on my team. Like I, anyone who's coached or had kids or done teaching, um, if you have a student or an athlete or whoever who, who makes bad decisions, you kind of want to separate yourself from them. 
um, you kind of want to, oh, that's not, that's not mine. I didn't teach them that. Um, my parents uh, were doing foster care, and uh, they had two little kids uh, who had grown up in a real racist home. Um, and so they, the first night they were at Walmart, and uh, an African-American family turned the corner into their aisle, and they yelled a really obscene word and pointed at them. And my parents are like, oh, no. And they just took up saying they had them for a few months. We just want a shirt that says, we did not raise these kids. Uh, don't blame us. Don't shoot us. I mean, we did not teach them to talk like this or to think like this. Um, and I mean, that's the, I, I would feel like. So Wednesday morning, I'm, I'm sitting there, and just a little bit of mouth pain has me mad at God. Has me going, oh, come on. Seriously? I'm, I'm feeling like in that moment, he, Jesus has to be like, no, you know, that's gross. Why would we? But the scripture says he's, he's claiming me. He's saying, that's my brother. I'm proud of him. I claim him as my own. And look at the big why here. It's not because we're good. It's not because we have earned it. It's not because we're impressive, but it's because we have one source. It's because God has chosen to give us grace and mercy and bring us to glory. It's because God has sent Christ Jesus to be our champion, our founder, to win our salvation. And, and he gives us a couple of scriptures to support this. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is a quote from Psalm 22. Verse 22, um, Psalm 22 is a, a psalm of victory. So if you, you go back and read it, um, the first 19 verses are uh, about suffering and about um, feeling like God's far from you. If you remember, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross. Um, he quotes verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, but in the end, I think a lot of people misinterpret that. Uh, in Mark 15, and, and don't realize, I mean, the psalm, Psalm 22, you can read it, is a psalm of victory. And what happens is you have these first 19 verses um, that are, why have you forsaken me? I'm suffering, I'm, I'm being persecuted. But then in verse 22, the verse he quotes here, it flips. The psalm flips, and it turns into a psalm of victory, where the psalmist is going, my suffering was the means of your victory, was the means of you delivering on your promises. And he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. When he's saying Jesus is, is looking at us after his suffering and he's, he's calling us his brothers. He's saying they're the ones being brought to glory. They're the ones who are the benefactors of my suffering, my victory. And again, he, he says in verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Um, these are two quotes from Isaiah 8, uh, verse 17 and verse 18. And uh, I mean, at first glance, if you look at it, seems kind of, you know, why are they here? Um, how does that apply at all? Um, a, a important thing to know about when the New Testament used the Old Testament is that a lot of times you have to um, understand the context of the quote um, more than just the words that are in there. And so in Isaiah 8, um, Isaiah has been called, has been commissioned to preach the word of God. You remember that scene real famous, here am I, uh, send me. Um, and then, I mean, we stop it there, but right after that, God says, what? No one's going to listen to you? Every time you open up your mouth, you're going to get beaten up? I mean, it's not a real encouraging. I mean, we stop it right there with the beautiful, here am I, send me. No one wants to hear that, and it's going to be the most pointless job that I've ever given to anybody. Um, so Isaiah preaches. He's faithful. He preaches, and no one listens, just like God said. In Isaiah 8, he's saying, even though I was suffering, even though people aren't listening to me, I'll put my trust in him, that somehow my failure, my suffering, will be used victoriously. And he's talking about his children, his family, and even maybe his disciples. He says, behold, I and the children God has given me. If you keep reading in, in verse 18, Isaiah 8, he, he says that his children, his family, are, are in a sense a sign that his message is true. 
his followers, they're assigned to the rest of the world that even though he's suffering, even though it looks like he's not victorious, it's true. And, and so it's being applied here to Jesus and saying that you and I, he, he looks at us, his church, even with our mistakes, even with our failures in this world. And he says, that's a sign. Those are my brothers. That's a sign that I have won. And they're following me. They're worshiping me. They're pursuing me. Jesus, he, he regards us with brotherly love. He looks at us like, like an older brother looks at a younger brother. And says, that's my guy. That's my girl. I love them. I, I've won salvation for them. And so if you look in verse 14, the scriptures will spell out um, how uh, Jesus became our champion. Um, how the salvation was won. Um, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Okay, so here we have um, three actions that Jesus did um, to become our Savior. The first you see in here in uh, verse 14, he became human. The children, you and I, we, we share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise partook of those same things. It's the incarnation. God, the Son, the Father, pre-existent, creating all things, becomes man, takes on flesh and blood, identifies with us, and even identifies to the point of death. He experiences what we experience. And in his death, the scriptures say he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So he becomes human, then he defeats the devil. Now, the devil, this, this person, um, has, has largely been misunderstood, I think, in the church. Um, to, I think to help us out of the confusion, if we go back to really the first place where we see this figure, um, it would be the book of Job, uh, and it's a figure called Hasatan um, in Hebrew, which is a title, it's not a name, it's a title called the accuser. And in Job, I mean, if you read Job, it's a, a servant of God, created by God, used by God um, for his own purposes. So you can go read Job. Um, seems like... So we know the story of Job. Job is afflicted. Lots of bad things happen to him. If you read the story, it seems like it's actually God's idea for that stuff to happen. He's kind of whispering it in the Hasatan's ear um, and, and telling him to go do this. So he's a servant. He's a minister um, of God. Um, now, over time, yeah, he goes off straight, becomes this evil, menacing figure. Um, but he's the accuser. He brings our sins, our failures in front of God. And so that's how he, according to the scriptures, holds the power of death. So we say our, our sin, the wages of it is death. When it's fully grown, it brings death. This is what sin does. And Hasatan holds that power over us as bringing the accusations against us. But somehow, Jesus, in his death, defeats. So here we have the champion. He's like Hercules. He's fighting a battle for us. In his death, in his suffering, he defeats the one who holds the power of death. And then in verse 15, he delivers those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he defeats the devil, and then he frees. He frees us from death. Surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Here we have um, Exodus language. So if you remember the story of the Exodus, the, uh, the, the Israelites were um, slaves in Egypt, and God defeats the Egyptian army, the Pharaoh, and then brings them out to be his people in the Promised Land. Well, here, you and I are in slavery. And it's not to Egypt or Rome or whomever, but it's to sin, to death. 
We're in slavery to the consequences of the choices that we've made. To what will happen when our sin becomes fully grown and destroys us. But again, Jesus, through his death, destroys the one who holds that power, defeats him, and also frees us, takes us out of that land. And the question that I have as I'm reading this is how? I mean, how, how does that work? How does a man, a, a young Jewish prophet, carpenter, how does his death on a cross, how does that destroy the power of the one who holds death? How does that deliver and free us from sin, from death? Because if anything, I mean, that's kind of, it looks like a defeat. I mean, he died on the cross, it seems like, Death did to him what it does to everybody else. So how does that work itself out? Well, he's going to explain this um, in chapter 7 and in verse 17. Look at this. Um, he'll, he'll tell us kind of that how, the inner workings of how this happened. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, so Jesus here, as the champion of our salvation, has become a high priest. He's become our great high priest. Um, high priests were, were um, commissioned by God to make sacrifices for the sins of God's people. They were sent to atone for the sins of God's people. Um, they did so through animal sacrifices year after year after year. And the scripture saying he has become our high priest. He's become the one who atones for our sacrifices. But instead of bringing an animal to put our sins on and let them be punished, instead he himself is the animal. He himself is our sin sacrifice. His own life was the sin sacrifice. And so you have this word here. Um, he made propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation. The Greek is halasmos. And the idea here is... is that what happened as Jesus died on the cross is the wrath, the outworking, the consequences of our sin was absorbed by him. He took it on. He absorbed it. And so there, there's a couple, I mean, people, if you've heard, there's the word expiation. And then there's propitiation. Say propitiation with me. Propitiation. It's not a, I mean, it's not a word we use, right? I mean, I don't think I've ever heard it outside of a church service or a scripture verse. Um, and it's this real ancient idea. Um, expiation, um, which is sometimes what people want to make this, is where I have sin, and the sin is right here, and it's taken away from me. And so now there's no longer death coming for me. It's not on me anymore. But propitiation is that I have sin right here, and death is coming for me. But what happens is someone stands in front of me and absorbs it. It never gets to me. It's worked out on them. And the scripture saying that's what's happening on the cross. As Jesus is dying, your sin, my sin, the death and punishment, destruction that was coming because of it is absorbed by him. It's taken up by him. And so in that moment, now death has no more power. He's destroyed the one who holds the power of death. Because there's, it's, it's all been absorbed. It's all been absorbed. The sin has been taken care of. It's been worked out. The consequences have come, and he's absorbed it for us. It does not get to us. And then he delivers us from sin and death. He leads us out of this land. He leads us into freedom, into eternal life. 
That's what's happening on the cross. That's how Christ's death is a victory for you and for me because it was a propitiation. It was an absorption of wrath. He's our high priest and his own life is the sin sacrifice. And then look at this. He, he's a merciful and faithful high priest. And then verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So again, we, we get back to how does, how does he relate to us? This is what he's done for us. How, do, how does he relate to us? Where it's like he's merciful. He's faithful. Because he has suffered, he helps. He has compassion. He, he sympathizes and helps us with our weaknesses. So, as I'm sitting there Wednesday morning, and my mouth is just hurting, and I'm upset, and I'm angry, um, I would expect Jesus' reaction to be, get it together. Your mouth hurts. Grow up. That's how, that's how much you love me and trust me? Your mouth hurts and you're upset at me? I mean, I would expect an annoyance there, a disappointment there. But instead, the scripture is saying, Jesus looks at me and he goes, I know. I've felt the weight of a fallen world. And I'm having mercy, and I'm helping, and I'm drawing near to you. So if you read through the Gospels, I mean, from day one, Jesus does feel the weight of, of kind of the fallenness of the world. So, so throughout the, the Gospels, he, he has a buddy who dies, Lazarus, and he weeps for him. So he knows the feeling of having someone you love die and just being kind of overwhelmed and, and really distraught. And as you go through the Gospels, he is betrayed by his family. His mother and brothers come to him and, and try to take him away because um, they think he's crazy. He, he's betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. He falls down in a garden, overwhelmed, sweating blood. There's a real interesting story in the Gospels where he gets tired on a trip and sits down. Um, what's really interesting is that his disciples aren't tired, so they keep going. I, I love the way someone put it. He says, the, the only person in the Gospels without a Messiah complex is the Messiah. He's like, I'm tired. I'm sitting down. Super saying he's felt that weight because he has suffered when tempted, because he took flesh and blood, because he walked on this fallen world, because in a sense, he's experienced it more than we ever will, because he absorbed the full darkness of it. That when you and I are suffering, when we're weak, he has compassion, he has sympathy. He doesn't look down and go, get it together, what are you doing? He looks down and goes, I know. I know, and I'm here to help you, and, and I'm here to tell you that one, that I'm taking you out of this, that I've destroyed these powers, that one day a day is coming, where there is no pain, and there is no death. Who is Jesus? What has he done for us? I mean, this is Christian faith. This is following after him. It's seeing the cross, seeing his death, and appropriating it, making it real to us. And believing at the core of our being that when he was dying, our sins, the wrath, the death, the consequence was being absorbed by him. And that right now, right at this moment, he doesn't look at us with disappointment. He doesn't look at us um, with frustration or with an annoyed disposition. But he looks at us and says, it's my brother. That's my brother and I bought him. I paid for his sin and I know what he's going through. I know the, I know the pain. I know the weight. I know the gravity of a fallen world. And so, what, I mean, what do I think our best hope is for our marriages, 
and for our relationships and for our jobs and for our depression and anxiety and our confusion and our doubts and our temptations. I think it's a deeper and deeper and deeper understanding of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, of how he relates to us here and now. I think the Christian faith, I mean, Luther would say, you don't get farther than repentance. Repentance is not something you do when you become a Christian and you stop. It's something you do every day, every second of your Christian life. When you say, he's good, he's worthy, he has saved me, and I'm following after him. And some of those tough times hit when, when it's hard, when pain hits. We rehearse these truths to ourselves. We run to him. We don't run away from him. We look at the cross. We look and think about and gaze on his death. And we say, that was for me. I mean, this is, he, he's saying here in, in verse 9, we, we read it last week, he might taste death for everyone. He tasted it, and we don't. And that, these basic but deep eternal truths... That's what creates momentum. That's what creates loyalty and worship and faith. And that's what creates endurance to suffer and to sacrifice and to still follow him. So Hebrews, he, he's, he's writing to a group of people that's in danger. I mean, they're, they're just toying with the idea of, of falling away or maybe not even intentionally falling away, but, but drifting drifting over time. And he's just, I mean, throughout this whole book, he's going to be pleading with them, keep your eyes on him. Don't get off track. For sure, don't make it about what you're doing or what you can do. But remember who he is, what he has done, and how he relates to you today. So, so once again, in my prayer this morning is that we would see him. We would see his death. We would see what the scriptures say about how he feels about you and I. And we'd be prepared. We'd be prepared to endure and to worship and to have faith. To follow him. Our champion. Our high priest. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time this morning. And I pray that as we, um, as we approach you and, and as we read your scriptures that you would continue to work in our hearts. Um, Father, I, I pray that your salvation, that the, the victory that you won would be real to us. It wouldn't just be something we, we get past or, or that we ignore. But that it would be foundation for everything that we have. That I pray that um, we'd be strengthened to endure suffer well. Father, I pray that when life gets hard, we'd, we'd not run from you, but we'd run to you. That our hearts would, would realize this morning um, the victory, the salvation that you've won, and, and then your love for us, your, your brotherly love that, that reaches down and says, I know, I know I've paid for that, and, and I'm leading you out of that. Be with us. Help us not to just run to the the routines this morning, but help us to meet with you and experience you as we worship, Father. Fill this room with your spirit, work in our hearts. We love you and we want to follow you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.